0: Okay, please take a seat, thank you. Please take a seat and let's open our Bibles this morning. Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. We're continuing our series on, on Book of Revelation. I think I started about a year ago. And I think I promised that it would end by the end of last year. And, and we're still going through Revelation. We're up to chapter 19. And we're, we're getting near the end. And today, I've, I've done a written exposition of the whole chapter. And you can read that in the corner post. And if you didn't get a copy of the corner post as you came in, you can read that online on our website. Or drop us a line, and we'll send, send a link through to you. So my exposition of the whole chapter is there in written form. And this morning we're just going to focus on these wonderful verses in Revelation 19, verses 6 to 9. So I hope you'll have your Bibles open. We're going to focus on Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 to 9. And welcome. If you're visiting with us this morning, it's great to see you. And we hope you'll stay behind and give us a chance to get to know you. Welcome to Cornerstone Presbyterian, and we love Jesus, we love his word, we love to praise him, and we're going to listen to his word now from Revelation 19. Now the word on the street is that the church is facing hard times. That until the turn of the last century, we lived in a, a kind of Christianized society where whether people were Christian or not, they were happy to live or let live. So if you weren't a Christian, you are probably happy for your friend to be a Christian, and even though you thought what they believed might be a bit strange, you were content with that. But the massive shifts in attitude that we have seen in the last two decades in particular, shifts in attitude about life and sexuality and gender and marriage, have exposed Christian teaching, have exposed Christian beliefs to be unacceptable, in some measure to our society. And so many Christians get rough treatment on social media. I know that because you you tell me, particularly our young people. And Christian businesses and charitable organizations are coming under pressure and some have had to close. And young Christians are gonna find it more and more challenging to to build a career in a society that that dislikes the kinds of uh, positions that they take On these social matters. And we are even seeing Christians being prosecuted under anti-discrimination laws. Now I've got a few comments to make about this. My first comment is that all this is more or less true, that Christian life is growing more and more difficult. But my second comment is that that has always been the case. That's always been the case. Look at the history of the church. It's never been easy to live as a Christian in a fallen world, and I think we've had it fairly easy in Western society over the last couple of generations. My third comment is that in a world that is becoming more and more obsessed with race and gender differences, and in a world that is laboring under a pandemic and perhaps gathering clouds of war, it's getting harder for everyone, right? It's getting harder for everyone, whether you're a Christian or not. It's getting harder for everyone to live happy and peaceful lives. And so although Christians may face some unique challenges, in a world of pain and in a world of rage, Christians should be standing out as a people of peace and joy and contentment and confidence. And we're going to see why that is from this beautiful passage in front of us. We're going to see why in in a world and in a society where people are sad and, and, and upset and angry and frustrated and hopeless, that although Christians do face some unique challenges, that we are not to go around moping, but we are to be a people recognizable by our, our joy and confidence in the future, a people who stand out in that kind of way. Now certainly the first readers of the book of Revelation, so these words you're reading here, written some 2000 years ago, the very first readers of these words, the, the, the audience that, that John wrote to, the first Christians, were facing some terrible persecution. And many, we know, had been rejected by their family and by their social circles. Many were finding it more difficult to work and to trade. And we read in chapter two that a Christian man called Antipas had been put to death for his faith in the city of Pergamum. So perhaps the the first readers of this book were the first Christian readers were feeling tempted to feel sorry for themselves. They were looking towards the future with a sense of, of gloom and pessimism. Well, the clear invigorating message of Revelation 19 to those first Christians and to us is this. Don't feel sorry for yourselves. All heaven is congratulating you. All heaven is applauding for what Christ has done for you and the position that you are in. Have a look there at verse six, where John says that I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud pills of thunder, people shouting hallelujah, for the Lord God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and, what does it say? Let us rejoice and be glad. The word could mean exalt. Let us rejoice, be glad and exalt and give him glory. I used to live when I was growing up 300 meters from the sports field and I loved on a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon, you'd hear every now and again this this roar, this, this cheer coming up from the sports field. Football game or a cricket game going on. And, and, and you, it made you feel good, and you wanted to go down there, right? You wanted to go down, and often I did, to, to see what, what are these people cheering about? I want, to be a, I want to be a part of that. I don't want to miss out on, on this applause, on this cheering. We were made to applaud. It, it's like an urge within us. It's like a drive within us. And we, we see heaven applauding here. Hallelujah. Praise. Yahweh. Yahweh. Praise the Lord, the Lord God Almighty, that word almighty, the Greek word "Pantocrator," meaning all powerful, all reigning. Hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Now, why is God's almighty reign something to rejoice and be glad about? Well, look there, you'll see that there is something that his almighty power has accomplished. Verse seven, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, why? For the wedding of the lamb has come. The wedding of the lamb has, and now if, if you're new to church today, that's, that's gonna sound quite strange. The wedding of the Lamb has come, right. And this is supposed to fill me with gladness and exultation. Well, let's let's look at why that is. In in the Old Testament, the Lord likened himself to be a husband. He likened himself to a husband and Israel, the nation of Israel as his his bride. A beautiful metaphor of, of God's relationship to Israel. He was the husband. The nation of Israel was the bride. The problem was, and read the book of Hosea and read the early chapters of Jeremiah and you will see that Israel was a faithless bride, an adulterous bride. The Lord loved her but she didn't love him back. She loved other husbands, other gods, false gods, idols. Israel was an unfaithful and adulterous spouse. And the prophets teach us that God had every right to divorce Israel. He had every right to abandon his unfaithful spouse who kept off running off after other husbands. But here the book of Revelation says, Rejoice and be glad because the Lord Represented here as the lamb and we'll see why that is in just a moment. Rejoice and be glad because the Lord is, has not stopped loving his bride. And as it were, has has brought his straying bride back to himself. His adulterous bride, he's brought her back and, and now there's the wedding ceremony. And the wedding's going to be accomplished and formalized completed. Rejoice and be glad because although the Lord could have abandoned his faithless bride, that that here we see in heaven a wedding of the Lord and his people. He's taking her back, remarrying her as it were. And not because he can't live without her, he can. And, And not because he wants to keep up appearances. Of course not, but because he is the Lord and the very word Lord is associated in the Bible with love, covenant love, loyal love, faithful love. It's the Lord's very nature to be faithful to those who are faithless to him and to hold on to those who have let go of him, to be a faithful husband to a faithless and straying spouse rejoice and be glad for the wedding of the lamb has come and this is making us remember that the lord has not abandoned his people and we see the wedding of the lord and his people in heaven and the lord's love is it's the kind of love a covenant love that overcomes the faithlessness of his spouse. I don't know about you, but I I really appreciate those kind people who look after broken animals. You know the kind of people I'm talking about. There's a bird with a broken wing, and and they just take in that bird. Or there are people who look after Siamese cats that are left in Hobart by their owners who've moved to Perth. (laughs) Those are the people I really appreciate you might make yourself known to me. <laughs> and even more, I appreciate those kind of people who, who love broken people and Mother Teresa who cared for those, those orphans in Calcutta, and those kids who had leprosy and were impoverished and lame. But you know, even more than that, I appreciate those who seem to be able to surround and love those who are broken because they have made bad decisions. Now, we've got prison fellowship here today. They know all about that, loving people who have made bad decisions. And I I think of William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, who, who, who cared for the people of London. And many of them were broken through poor decisions. They were in debt, they were alcoholics. And and, and he had this tremendous love where the rest of society said, well, that's their own fault. Let them suffer the consequences of their own bad decisions. But there was such love there, love that that, that was willing to, to, to embrace those who were broken because of their own poor decisions. Brothers and sisters, what about those people who love those who have betrayed them? What about people whose love is so great that it embraces those who have betrayed them? That's a—that's not an earthly love. That kind of extraordinary, self-effacing, humble love, that's a heavenly love. That is the, Lord, the love of the Lord for his people. The wedding of the Lamb is celebrating a God of love, a God of faithfulness, a God who has not and will not let go of his people, though they have let go of him and have been unfaithful to him. A love that is willing to to remarry his, his faithless spouse. Now, does that mean that the Lord overlooks the crime of his wayward spouse? In the Old Testament, the law of God says, That if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. The law of God said that adultery deserves capital punishment. That's God's own law. That's what God's justice and holiness demands. Our own laws used to reflect that, by the way, up until 1973 in divorce law reform. Divorce was actually technically a punishment. It was actually a punishment of a spouse that had done the wrong thing. You see, no matter how much God loves his his wayward bride, her adultery must be punished. Justice must be satisfied. And and, and so here we have this Dilemma, as it were, how can the Lord be true to his character of faithful love and he, and he wants to love his wayward spouse and be true to his character of justice and holiness and bring judgment upon her crime. Well that's why all heaven rejoices for the wedding of the Lamb. The Lord who loves with faithful covenant love is is also the lamb. The lamb is the Lord. The Lord is the lamb. And the lamb is the sacrifice. It takes the punishment upon itself. The Lord is not just the faithful husband. He's the sacrificial lamb. He takes the consequences of his bride's faithlessness upon himself. I knew a a woman, a wonderful woman, whose husband was a serial adulterer and she kept loving him. Amazing. And he became old and she kept loving him. And he grew sick and he didn't stop his, his awful ways, but she still loved him. Finally ended up crippled and unrepentant, but she still loved him. Never stopped loving him, bore the pain of that, the financial burden of that, the, the humiliation of that. She, she, she kind of took it on herself. She bore it herself. And all heaven praises the Lamb of God, the Lord, the faithful Lord, because he has taken upon himself the punishment that, that, that his bride should have borne taken that death upon himself so that she would not be punished. More than that, he's taken the bride's guilt so that she could enjoy all the the, the privileges of the faithful wife. His love does not stop at bearing his bride's punishment and guilt, by the way. Look there at verse seven. So, so far we've seen all heaven exulting, glad, praising the lamb for his faithfulness and for bearing the punishment that his bride deserved. But his love does not stop there. His love drives him now to wash and to transform and to beautify his bride. Look there at verse seven. And his bride has made herself ready Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Now, now for those of you who are uh, want more, you, you want to know about the technicalities of this passage. Let me just say one thing. Let me say one thing here. Righteous acts the Greek word translated righteous acts, it could, in fact, be translated as righteousness. And some of you are already seeing how that that changes the the shape of that verse. Fine linen stands for the righteousness of God's holy people. And you're thinking of Romans chapter 3, aren't you? And you're thinking of the, the declaration of not guilty. And the righteousness that God gives to his people by faith. And I'm so tempted... to to, to want to see it that way, but it really does mean righteous acts, the righteous acts of God's holy people. And what this is telling us is something equally as wonderful. It's telling us that when someone comes to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith and when they have been declared not guilty of their sin, that Jesus gets to work on their lives that the Holy Spirit fills them and Jesus begins to transform them. And we read about exactly this in Ephesians chapter five, where the apostle Paul says to Christian husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And this is what the book of Revelation is talking about here. It's talking about the love of the Lord, the love of the Lamb, that doesn't just take the punishment of his people, but then goes on to transform his people so that they're not just declared righteous, but they, that they begin to live righteous lives, that they begin to grow in holiness. You can tell who the bride of Christ is. You can always tell who the bride of Christ is. They are atoned, they are forgiven, justified, but they're also being sanctified. Jesus is working on them. They're learning to, to hate sin more and more each day and learning to, to love Jesus and his ways more and more. As a pastor, I've said this before, but, but when people come to me and they, they say, I, I'm really struggling with sin, I'm really struggling and, and, and sometimes I fail. And and there's a part of me inside, actually a big part of me, that that thinks, yes, tremendous. That's the Holy Spirit there. That's the Spirit of Christ right there. Here's a person who sins, and they're not complacent, you see. And, And it frustrates them, and they hate it. And they wish to God they never did it. That's. That's the work of the Spirit. The Christian isn't perfect until we reach heaven. But the Christian is being sanctified, washed by Christ our husband, who's determined to make us holy and godly. And that's this beautiful picture of the church we have here. So brothers and sisters, here's here's a letter, here's a book of the Bible written to a suffering church and they were losing their family, losing their jobs, and some were losing their lives. And this, this passage from God's word today is saying, congratulate them, congratulate the bride. Blessed are those, it says there in verse nine, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Invited, and it's literally called. Congratulate those who've been called to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And here we're talking about a powerful call, the powerful call of God. Think of Jesus who stood outside the tomb of Lazarus. Did he invite Lazarus out of the tomb? He commanded him out of the tomb. He called him out of the tomb. And, and, and his power went out with that call and gave life to that corpse so that he could come out of the tomb. Blessed are those who are called in that powerful way to the wedding supper of the Lamb. They are to be congratulated. Well, when I was in year six, I was 11 years old and we had to do a little uh, assignment that year on a particular wedding that was going on on the other side of the world. Can you guess which wedding that might have been? We had to to research about this, this wedding and we had to produce a little project about it. And you know the wedding I'm talking about, right? It was the wedding of the century. The wedding of the 20th century. The fairy tale princess. Happily ever after. And Woman's Weekly dined out on Charles and Diana's wedding for decades, didn't they? That, 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 that wonderful, beautiful wedding. So many of us saw it, but it ended with so much sadness. Didn't it? And with death. And then there was the wedding of the 21st century. 30 years later, 2011. Kate Middleton and Prince, what's his name? And we're all excited again about another royal wedding. <laughs> but so many of us thought, oh, I hope this one works out. I really hope this one works out. We we saw the first one and we saw what happened. And there was a sense of uh, cynicism, perhaps, pessimism, about that second wedding. And really, there, we have that, that sense when at every wedding, don't we? Every wedding, you see the... The husband and the, the bride and groom and they're happy and their cheeks are hurting from all the, the smiling and, and we, we smile with them and we hope, we know the hardships they face, they're going to face. And we know they're gonna need a lot of help and support. Imagine a wedding that you know for certain will be perfect. There will be no disappointments, no unfaithfulness, perfect happiness, a true happily ever after That's not a fairy tale hope for the church, that's the joyful reality that we have read about this morning in Revelation chapter 19. The joyful reality of the wedding of the Lamb, the Lord with his people, his people strayed and went away, but the Lord loved them so much that he pulled them back to himself and gave his life for their sins and then filled them with his spirit so that they would be transformed day by day into godliness and Christ-likeness. That's the beautiful, beautiful wedding that we see here in Revelation 19. And so yes, brothers and sisters, the hardships must come. And I look at you now, and I, I know many of you are facing the hardships right now, living the Christian life in a world that's becoming more and more Christless, Christian values seeping away. You're more exposed and many are doing it tough. And I look at our young people, I look at our children, and it's going to be harder for you than it is for us. And young people, you need to know that the decades ahead are just going to get harder to live as a Christian. You need to prepare for that. You need to be open-eyed. You need to be resolved. You need to know it's going to be hard. So when the hardships come, they won't be a surprise to you. And Jesus promised them and he promised to help us through them. But what I want to finish by saying this morning to, to us all is that whatever the hardships we're facing, let's not feel sorry for ourselves. Heaven doesn't... Heaven congratulates us. Heaven is praising God for, for who we are, the, 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 the bride of Christ, loved by a faithful... Self-sacrificing husband, who was washing us day by day with the words. What a terrible witness, moping and complaining, and fear is to the world. It's a denial, in fact, of Christ's work. It's a denial of our status. And and, and let's look at our world with compassion. Everyone is hurting right now. Everyone's suffering. So much anxiety, so much, so much grief. So, Cornerstone, we ought to be standing out, right? We ought to be standing out in this, in this world of hopelessness and, and grief and anxiety. We should be standing out as a beacon of hope. We should be singing in our chains like like Paul and Silas in that Philippian jail. We were made, called and saved to rejoice and be glad and to praise the Lamb of God who loves us with such a faithful love. And so when you get that rough treatment on social media and when your business suffers and when you face career challenges because of your, your standing and the values of your Christian faith. And even when you face persecution and death like Antipas, let us rejoice. And what does it say next? And be glad and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come the bride has made herself ready you Amen